This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to take you back to a pretty dark and significant part of American history. January of this year. Let's listen in on Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, speaking only a few hours after the United States Capitol was attacked by a violent mob a horde of insurrectionists who demanded that the result of a democratic election be overturned. While we disagree on things and disagree strongly at times, we do not encourage what happened today, ever. I want to join my fellow senators in saying thank you to the Capitol Hill Police, the law enforcement, the National Guard, the Secret Service, who stood in harm's way while we were here debating. They were pushing back. And I was literally interrupted mid-sentence speaking here because we were all unaware of what was happening right outside this room because of their faithfulness and because what they have done. And I want to thank them. Ronald Reagan once said, peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. Peaceful people in my state in Oklahoma want their questions answered, but they don't want this, what happened today. Before the rioters attacked the Capitol, it's important to note Senator Langford had supported at least the spirit of their effort. But there was a name there. Here's President Barack Obama standing next to Nancy Reagan, speaking long before the insurrection. President Reagan understood that while there are often strong disagreements between parties and political adversaries, disagreements that can be a source of conflict and bitterness, it is important to keep in mind all that we share. For all of the deepest divides uh, that that exist in America, uh, the bonds that bring us together are that much stronger. Uh, We may see the world differently, but we must never stop seeing one another as fellow Americans and as patriots who want what is best for the country that we love. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, for the first episode of our third season, we're looking into the past, at the story of someone who is very much still with us. If you were casting someone to play a president, Ronald Reagan would be ideal. And it just so happens that he was also an ideal President, people running for public office today reference Ronald Reagan as if they think that everybody knew who Reagan was and knew the history of Reagan, not realizing that many of the people voted today had no idea they were not even born when Reagan was in the world of politics. That is the legendary Willie Brown, a Democrat former mayor of San Francisco and longtime speaker of the California State Assembly, somebody who worked with Reagan and knew him. What does Willie Brown mean when he calls Reagan the ideal president? And how does this vision of Reagan differ from the reality of the leader that Reagan really was? 
On this episode of Who Is, we're going to look at a few of the things that people have forgotten about Reagan and why those things matter today. So, who is Ronald Reagan? Ronald Reagan's life is an eerily perfect rags-to-riches story. The American Dream. Reagan was born on February 6, 1911, in a five-room apartment, above a tavern in the town of Tampico, Illinois. Population around 700 today, a little more than 800 then. The first thing that Reagan's father Jack said upon seeing his newborn son was, he looks like a fat little Dutchman. But who knows? He might grow up to be president one day. Which is a weird thing to say, but it was 1911. The family was poor, and Jack was an alcoholic who had trouble holding down steady work. Ronald had a way closer relationship with his mother, Nell. She was probably the kindest human being I've ever known. Now, looking back, I know that we live in poverty or pretty close to it all the time. But we didn't know that at the time because the government didn't come around and tell us we were poor. And uh, she was always finding someone worse off that we would help. And I remember that about her. In 1977, the New York Times asked Reagan what books influenced him as a young adult. He named adventure novels, mystery, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, the exact kind of stuff you'd think a little boy in the 1920s would read. He said, All in all, as I look back, I realize that all my reading left an abiding belief in the triumph of good over evil. There were heroes who lived by standards of morality and fair play. I'm a sucker for hero worship to this day. Reagan turned 18 in 1929 as America fell into the Great Depression. He saw firsthand the consequences of societal economic collapse and often referenced his own experience of it. Quote, We didn't live on the wrong side of the tracks, but we lived so close to them we could hear the whistle real loud. The Reagans were hit hard by the Depression. Jack had taken out loans to open a shoe store. It shuddered. And Nell had to go work in a dress shop for 14 bucks a week. Nevertheless, Reagan did have the opportunity to get an education. Although he wasn't a particularly exemplary student, he goes to Eureka College, a small religious school near Peoria, Illinois. Today, Eureka is, unsurprisingly, really into their most famous alumnus. Eureka advertises the, quote, largest selection of Reagan-related objects on public display outside of the presidential library, including Reagan's presidential cowboy boots. Reagan graduates at the height of the Depression. Seriously, we all thought 2008 was bad, but he hustles himself into a job as a sports announcer in Davenport, Iowa, near Des Moines, calling baseball games at 10 bucks a game. When a staff job opened up, he gets brought on. According to biographer Lou Cannon, a young Reagan had trouble with commercials. Quote, while he found it difficult to read commercials in a conversational tone, Reagan learned that he could sound spontaneous if he memorized a script before he read it. He followed this practice with important radio and television speeches during much of his political career. The Washington Post quotes a strangely vague subsequent observer on Reagan's voice. Quote, it recedes at the right moments, turning mellow at points of intensity. When it wishes to be most persuasive, it hovers, barely above a whisper, so as to win you over by intimacy, if not by substance. Just remember that he was, at all times, even through the presidency, he was still the Dutch 
play-by-play announcer of a baseball game. In 1937, Reagan gets discovered. Again, in a very much almost unbelievable American dream, it can happen to you kind of way. How do you do, everybody? I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Ronald Reagan. A few months ago, I was a sports announcer on a radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. One day I ran into one of these movie talent scouts. I think I caught him off guard because the next thing I knew I was taking a screen test for Warner Brothers in Hollywood. I guess it was okay. At least I liked Hollywood. So here I am. Reagan doesn't become a superstar, but in a few years he's getting top billing. The studios making cheap, quick films loved that Reagan could memorize lines quickly. Here's Reagan on The Dick Cavett Show, 1971. See, when you started in this business back in that golden era, they had a thing called the B unit mm-hmm. at each studio. And I became the, the hero of the bees for a while at Warner Brothers. What about Bedtime for Bonzo? That's one of my favorite films you were ever in. Well, now listen, the funny thing is, Bedtime for Bonzo was quite a box office smash. During World War II, Reagan, due to his poor eyesight, ended up in the first motion picture unit in the Air Force, where he made training and motivational films for the armed services. How do we know we pick the best man for the job he can do best? How can we be sure of that? The Army Air Forces must find out which hands are most sensitive, which eyes are most keen, which reactions most adaptable. How's your perception of depth, mister? Read the bottom line. We can't take chances with eyes when there are bombs to be dropped on Tokyo. Reagan, it's worth noting, never saw combat and spent the war at home in Hollywood making movies. But it was TV that started Reagan toward household namedom, hosting General Electric Theater, a show where he'd introduce and sometimes appear in a short drama. Good evening. I am Ronald Reagan speaking for General Electric. Tonight from Hollywood, it is my pleasure to appear in a story entitled The Dark, Dark Hours. Young James Dean, one of the bright new actors in Hollywood, appears with me, and Constance Ford plays my wife on the General Electric Theater. By 1956, General Electric Theater was one of the most popular programs in the United States, reaching, according to GE, over 25 million viewers each week. In 1956, there were only about 35 million TV households in America. If you were watching television in the 1950s, you were probably watching Ronald Reagan. Not only did that expose him to America as an actor, but as something more than that. His contract stipulated he also had to go to General Electric plants around the country and give speeches, sometimes up to 14 a day. One of the GE PR people Reagan worked with said, quote, We drove him to the limit. We saturated him in middle America. Weirdly, back in Los Angeles, Reagan is a labor leader, seven-time president of the Screen Actors Guild, which represented film and television performers. In 1959, Reagan is president of a major labor union. In 1964, we get this. You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down. Man's old old age dream, the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism. And regardless of their sincerity, their humanitarian motives, those who would trade our freedom for security have embarked on this downward course. Yikes. That's Reagan campaigning for Barry Goldwater. What does it mean to campaign for Barry Goldwater? Jackie Robinson, who desegregated baseball and was known as a political independent, 
wrote the following after Goldwater became the Republican nominee for president in 1964. Quote, A new breed of Republicans has taken over the GOP. It's a new breed which is seeking to sell to Americans a doctrine which is as old as mankind. The doctrine of racial division. The doctrine of racial prejudice. The doctrine of white supremacy. If I could couch in one single sentence the way I felt watching this controlled steamroller operation roll into high gear, I'd put it this way. I would say that I now believe I know how it felt to be a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Remember, Goldwater is the guy Reagan was speaking on behalf of. Politics geeks remember Goldwater as an extremist. But that's not how they remember Reagan. And while I'm not implying that Reagan was an extremist, history is funny that way, isn't it? Two years after Reagan warned Americans about the pit of degradation, or ant heap of totalitarianism, he's elected governor of California. Here's Reagan in his first inaugural address as governor in 1967. Well, the truth is, there are simple answers. There just are no easy answers. The time has come for us to decide whether collectively we can afford everything and anything we think of simply because we think of it. The time has come to run a check and see if all the services the government provides were in answer to our demands or were they just goodies dreamed up for our supposed betterment. Goodies dreamed up for our supposed betterment. 13 years later, in 1980, Reagan runs for president and wins. In 1984, he's re-elected and by one of the biggest landslides in American history, winning 49 states out of 50. Here's Willie Brown. I am a Reaganite, so to speak, as a, as a um, politician, not so much on policy, but as a person who makes it comfortable for those of us who have been in politics to want to be identified with. And that's why people running for office today talk about Reagan as if he was the measurement of what you would expect in a president. When Reagan was in the world of politics, when he left the world of politics, it was not his policies that you wanted to identify with when you say you are a Reagan person. It was the man, the image, and the conduct, and the demeanor, and the respect that he always had, and the care that he seemed to exhibit for others. That's what we politicians all would like to be remembered. And that is, by and large, how Reagan's remembered. And then some. At the top of the episode, I told you we're going to look at what's been forgotten. So let's start with those goodies dreamed up for our supposed benefit. My name is Monica Prasad. I'm a professor at Northwestern University. Um, I have for some years now been um, writing uh, histories of the Republican Party. My latest book was called Starving the Beast, Ronald Reagan and the Tax Cut Revolution. Reagan's big thing, his big uh, narrative was that government has gotten too large. We're going to roll it back. It was all about putting money back in your pocket. Tax cuts. Reagan made even something as boring as taxes into a story of heroes and villains. A few minutes ago, I said that tax reform is a drama with heroes and villains and a damsel in distress. Well, the heroes are the citizens across this country who are asking for tax justice. The villains are the special interests, the I Got Mine gang. And the damsel in distress 
Well, that's a last named, that's a last named endless economic growth, and she's tied to the tracks and struggling to break free. What do you say? Will you help us untie her? So Reaganomics in particular, what it was, was um, really the central piece of it was this idea to cut taxes across the board. They said that if we cut taxes, this is going to give an incentive to businesses to create more jobs. It'll give an incentive to workers to work harder, you know, because um, they uh, will know that they can um, take more of their money um, home in their pockets and less of it is going to going to tax. Um, so this was their, their, their big idea. It didn't quite have the effects that they thought it would. No, it did not. Ask yourself, if corporations and the wealthy pay less in taxes, what do they do with the extra money? Create jobs? Tax cuts, too, were supposed to give workers an incentive to work harder. Again, ask yourself, do tax cuts inspire you to work harder? Eventually, because corporations and the wealthy had more money, and because workers were working harder, these tax cuts would be the catalyst that trickled down, ultimately resulting in the creation of more jobs, which in turn would result in a bigger tax base, which, along with the dreamed-of cuts to programs like Social Security and Medicare, we'll get to that, would more than make up for the revenue loss due to the tax cuts in the first place. Basically, it's like an upside-down pyramid scheme. And much like an upside-down pyramid scheme, it doesn't make sense, and it didn't work. Which is not to imply that many smart people didn't earnestly believe it would work. Reagan got his tax cut, but never got the budget cuts that would have paid for it. Here's Monica Prasad. He has these two halves of trying to cut the size of government. Um, he's going to try to cut taxes, and he's going to try to cut government spending. The Omnibus, Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act is his attempt to cut spending. The Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1981 was Reagan's first budget as president. Exciting stuff, I know, but it's really, really important. It did um, slash uh, poverty policies, but it was in many respects a huge failure compared to what Reagan had tried to do. And that's because programs for poor people just aren't that expensive. So poverty policies don't really make up very much of the budget at all. Um, they are really sort of, you know, very, very, um, we don't spend a lot of money trying to save people from poverty. Um, what Reagan really wanted to do is he really wanted to cut um, the big welfare entitlements, Social Security and Medicare. You know, so he was really gunning for Franklin Roosevelt. He was really gunning for the New Deal. Huge chunks of the budget go to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, basically trillions of dollars. And although it wasn't trillions of dollars in the late 1970s and early 1980s, it was a relatively comparable, unimaginable amount of money. Unimaginable amounts of money might sound like a lot, but these are the programs that, you know, ensure grandma can eat and afford to, like, go to the doctor. Programs which she paid into all her working life. In 1981, Reagan proposed the first major cuts to Social Security since the program was signed into law by FDR in 1935. So he wants to try to do something about these, um, these, uh, these, these big uh, middle-class welfare entitlements. So he puts in charge of it um, 
this uh, very young guy uh, at the time, David Stockman, he's the um, budget director of the Office in Management and Budget. And Stockman's charge is to go through the budget and figure out what we can cut. You know, so if you're a Republican who's in there to um, reduce the size of government, this is your dream job, right? So um, Stockman does this. He um, comes out with all of these things. And um, everything that they try to cut, it is not possible to cut. It doesn't turn out to be possible to cut anything other than programs for the poor. And David Stockman himself experiences this uh, dramatic disillusionment, which he chronicles in um, one of his books. He says, we had come in here to reduce government but all of the all of the really big programs have their defenders the only things that are undefended are programs for welfare mothers you know for programs for basically um, the marginalized who are not able to defend their interests. So um, it did lead to um, cuts in poverty programs, which produced lots of um, suffering, but compared to what they had tried to do, it was uh, very, very marginal what they actually managed to do. Reagan asked for $3.3 billion in cuts to aid to families with dependent children. He only got $342 million. He got an eighth of what he asked for in Medicaid cuts. He looked to cut $7 billion from food stamps. Congress only approved $2 billion. These were programs that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, poor people, depended on, and it didn't even have a major impact on the budget. It was symbolic. Reagan was able to cut them because, for the most part, politicians on both sides of the aisle don't care about poor people. When we're back, we're going to take a look at the consequences of the cuts Reagan was able to make after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is Season 3. Today we're taking another look at Ronald Reagan. Meet Maria Foscarinas. I'm Maria Foscarinas, and I'm founder and executive director of the National Homelessness Law Center. And our mission is to use the power of the law to end and prevent homelessness in the United States. But that wasn't her first job. I started my legal career at a big law firm in New York, a Wall Street law firm. And there I had the opportunity to take a pro bono case. So I volunteered for this case where we were representing homeless families who had been denied emergency shelter. And they were living in Nassau County on Long Island, a wealthy suburb of New York City, and were living in just horrific conditions. And through this case, I had the opportunity to see firsthand that extreme poverty was very, very real, and it was existing side by side with great wealth. 
and the experience of using my legal skills to represent these families successfully, it turned out, really was powerful. And this was a class action case, so we were trying to make bigger changes in the law. It wasn't, we weren't just representing individuals, we were trying to change the law. And so it made a big impact on me, the fact that I could do this. Once you really see poverty firsthand and get to know the people who live it, it becomes much more difficult to just look away. People have to understand what the truth is, what the reality is, why people are homeless. That is huge. I mean, if people understood that people are homeless because our country has refused to make an investment in ensuring that people can afford, that everyone can afford housing, then it's not the fault of the people who are homeless. Yeah, right. You don't blame poverty on the people who are experiencing it. That's where the subject of our episode comes in. It goes back to those cuts Monica Prasad talked about earlier. So the Reagan administration um, made massive cuts to a range of social programs. And one of the biggest um, cuts was to low-income housing programs. So the federal government had, since the days of FDR, funded programs to help poor people afford housing. And Reagan came in on a platform of, um, of cutting the footprint of the federal government and cut that program, cut those programs, cut the funding. Um, and housing took a huge hit. So um, before Reagan came into office, the federal government was funding um, new units of affordable housing to the tune of over 300,000 a year. And after Reagan came in, that number dropped to about 2,000 units a year. So this is a huge cut and it had a massive impact. And it wasn't just the cuts to housing, it was also cuts to other kinds of social welfare, welfare programs, disability um, payments for disabled and older um, poor people food stamps. Um, so that really precipitated an, a huge increase in homelessness in the early to mid 80s. It's not as if people hadn't experienced housing instability before, but this was different. It was a huge increase. It was very visible um, and it was very sudden and it affected a very large um, swath of the population. This was a set of policy decisions that has enormous contemporary implications. These cuts that started during the Reagan era were never restored. And right now, only one in four of people who are poor enough to be eligible for public housing or Section 8 vouchers actually receives help under those programs um, because there's simply not enough funding for them. There is a direct link between these cuts made in the Reagan years and many of the people who are experiencing homelessness right now. But if you ask Reagan, they made their choice. We have found in this country, and maybe we're more aware of it now, is one problem uh, that we've had even in the best of times, and that is the people who are sleeping on the grates. The homeless who are homeless, you might say, by choice. He said it and his administration said it many times. Yes, people choose to be homeless. It's their own fault. Um, and, you know, it's, it's their personal characteristics. They're lazy. They're, they don't 
care about their living conditions. They just prefer to be outside. I mean, that is incredibly damaging. It means that you know, we, uh, the, the greater society doesn't have responsibility to address this. This is not a social problem. It's a problem of individuals. And it also means that there's something wrong with this, these individuals. It drives a narrative that somehow people who are homeless, people who are poor, are less than human. They don't, they're not like us. They don't deserve our help. They don't deserve um, taking of responsibility for their plight. They're not part of our community, they're other. And this has implications that continue to this day. But it was morning in America in 1984. Here's the famous campaign ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? I'm going to bring in another voice. I'm Paul Valberting. I'm a physician in San Francisco at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm just recently uh, retired, uh, so getting used to that, but uh, still, still very active in the field. Dr. Volberding began his career at San Francisco General Hospital in 1981. And literally on my first day, saw the first patient there uh, with Kaposi's sarcoma, the, the cancer that we saw in the early AIDS epidemic. is before we knew anything, of course. And Really, nothing prepared us for what we saw. The patients who Dr. Volberding saw that summer, 1981, were literally, historically, the first reported cases of what will come to be known as AIDS in the United States. One thing to remember is that without treatment, and, and we so easily forget this now because our treatments are so spectacular, without treatment, AIDS is the most fatal infection we've ever seen. Um, essentially 100% of people. You know, maybe there's 2% of people that, that the long-term survivors that, that kind of establish an equilibrium with the virus and, and survive. But, you know, 98% of people with this infection, if they don't get treatment, will die of it. Um, that's worse than smallpox. It's worse than Ebola. What Dr. Volberding was seeing in the early 1980s was truly awful. Patients were dying just kind of all the time. Um, they were amazingly sick. Um, There's something about life and survival that a tw- uh, you know the, a young body does not want to die uh, and will fight everything to stay alive. And so patients would just struggle and struggle and struggle to the point where they often had to be encouraged to let go. Like Dr. Volberding said, with the medications we have today, people with HIV-AIDS can live relatively normal lives. But those early days are something we can't forget. I wish people could remember how um, 
how brave the people were that that had this and 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 fought it and died of it. Um, people fought so hard, uh, and this disease was just so unrelenting. Um, and the people that that had it that were dying of it um, were often very uh, uh, estranged from their families, uh, often quite lonely. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd like people to remember. Uh, Really, uh, the the heroism of the of the people that were facing uh, this disease. It wasn't until 1985 that Reagan first publicly mentioned AIDS. Nearly five years after the disease had first appeared in the United States, why would someone who was in charge of a nation and its well-being let disease ravage it for five years? Well, because of who was getting it. Gay men, users of intravenous drugs, black and brown people, homeless people. These were not the heroes of the Reagan story. If anything, like homelessness was blamed on the homeless, those affected by AIDS were blamed for AIDS. You were meant to be scared of people with AIDS, not scared for them. Pat Buchanan, who worked for Reagan at the time, called it nature's revenge on gay men. Reagan would finally give a speech on AIDS in 1987. Too little, too late. We'll be back after this. As children, we're generally taught that America is the good guy in history. But as you learn more about, you know, everything, it becomes a little less clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Like so many of us, that's a realization that Joe Marie Burt had. And it would lead her, in part, to where she is today studying how post-conflict societies confront demands for justice and accountability, especially in Latin America. It was something that, to be honest, was very personal for me. I mean, I was 18, 19 years old and for the first time sort of moved out of my house, was living on campus, was being exposed to ideas and realities that were far from what I had grown up learning. And I learned about Central America when I was, I think, in my, I don't know, second semester of my freshman year. And it was very jarring because what I was learning did not coincide with the image that I had of what my country, the United States, was all about, right? I mean, in high school, we're taught that the United States is a moral nation, that the United States is, a, we were taught anyway, I don't know if this is what's still taught in schools today, but we're taught that the United States is a moral country, a country that is, you know, that the model of democracy in the world, that we're spreading democracy throughout the world. And yet what I was seeing was that we were bombing the harbors in El Salvador, that we were funding death squads in El Salvador, that we were backing genocidal military governments in, in Guatemala, uh, among in other parts of the world, right? And this was jarring for me. And it kind of lit a fire in me to understand what was happening in Central America and the rest of Latin America and what role the United States was playing. And so I became sort of fixated on this question and it was worse than I thought. What I discovered was worse than I thought. This is during the Cold War, when slapping communist on something gave the government the right to destroy it, like Ethel and Julius Rosenberg or universal health care. But Central America? I remember 
when I was a college student, I remember watching uh, the nightly news one evening and Ronald Reagan was giving a speech where he was trying to convince the Congress to pass economic assistance to Central America, primarily to El Salvador arguing that they were fighting against communism. And he showed a map of Central America and Nicaragua was in bright red. And he said that if the Congress didn't support his economic package to Central America, then kind of like this domino effect would happen. So suddenly the map, you know, El Salvador turned red, Guatemala turned red, Mexico turned red. And the next thing you know, there are these arrows pointing into Texas and Florida showing how the red menace was going to spread into the United States. El Salvador is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Nicaragua is just as close to Miami, San Antonio, San Diego, and Tucson as those cities are to Washington, where we're gathered tonight. What the administration is asking for on behalf of freedom in Central America is so small, so minimal, considering what is at stake. The total amount requested for aid to all of Central America in 1984 is about $600 million. That's less than one-tenth of what Americans will spend this year on coin-operated video games. I say to you that tonight there can be no question the national security of all the Americas is at stake in Central America. If we cannot defend ourselves there, we cannot expect to prevail elsewhere. Our credibility would collapse, our alliances would crumble, and the safety of our homeland would be put in jeopardy. We have a vital interest a moral duty, and a solemn responsibility. So what happened? In the case of Guatemala, um, I think it's quite fair to say that Ronald Reagan, both materially and morally, um, supported genocide in Guatemala. He provided massive economic and military aid to the Guatemalan uh, government to carry out its insurgency campaign, which consisted of scorched earth campaigns, massacres of rural villages, um, dis mass displacement of populations who were then herded in. Well, some of them fled into the mountains and lived for dec a decade in the mountains, escaping the military, while others were herded into model villages, which were really like concentration camps. How the hell did it get to that point? I'm not an authority on Guatemalan politics, but Joe Marie Bird is. This is from a piece she wrote for International Justice Monitor in 2018, when Guatemala's most brutal dictator, Efren Rios Montt, died. Quote, The short 17 months in which Rios Montt ruled Guatemala were the most brutal of the conflict. Human rights organizations estimate that 10,000 people were killed in the first three months of his government alone. During the first eight months of his government, there were 19 massacres each month and more than 400 indigenous communities were destroyed. And here's what you really need to understand. The Reagan administration knew about what was happening as it was happening. What Reagan did in the 1980s was um, provide quite a lot of um, political cover for the Guatemalan military regime as it was carrying out genocide. That's Elizabeth Oglesby. Oglesby is a professor of Latin American studies at the University of Arizona. So, you know, Reagan said that Rios Montt was receiving a bum rap. The United States tried to bury uh, reports of Guatemalan genocide. 
Um, and it's important to understand that U.S. officials knew in real time in the early 1980s that the Guatemalan army was massacring entire Mayan villages in the rural areas. Yes, you did hear bum rap in the context of genocide. Yes, those are the words Reagan actually used. And yes, the U.S. did know about the genocide. They knew because of the cables that were coming from the U.S. embassy in Guatemala. They knew it and they covered it up, actively covered it up. And then the Reagan administration also uh, mobilized political allies in the United States to support the military regimes in Guatemala as they were committing genocide. Reagan made a speech with Rios Montt literally by his side. President Rios Mount and I have had just had a useful exchange of ideas on the problems of the region and on our bilateral relations. Our conversation today has done much to improve the climate of relations between our two governments. I know that President Rios Montt is a man of great personal integrity and commitment. His country is confronting a brutal challenge from guerrillas armed and supported by others outside Guatemala. I have assured the president that the United States is committed to support his efforts to restore democracy and to address the root causes of this violent insurgency. I know he wants to improve the quality of life for all Guatemalans and to promote social justice. My administration will do all it can to support his progressive efforts. Reagan did do everything he could to support the so-called progressive efforts of Rios Montt and other brutal dictators from Guatemala and El Salvador to Honduras and Nicaragua. And this has had a massive impact, past and present. What is really at stake in Central America is, is what kind of future was going to be possible, right? And so what gets quashed in Central America, it's not radical communism. It's the possibility of, of reform. It's the, it's the possibility of democratic and, and economic reform and, and a more equitable and, and just future for the regions. Um, and so, of course, we see that legacy today, right? We see people who, from Central America who, who are still fleeing what is really the, the legacy of that period of brutal repression and militarization that the United States aggravated in Central America under Reagan. So why does it seem like very few people think of what happened in Central America when they remember Ronald Reagan? Here's Joe Marie Burt. I think there's been a, you know, a very <laughs> aggressive effort on the part of Republicans to shape uh, the way Ronald Reagan is perceived historically. Um, and it is the role of not just historians and scholars of Central America like myself, but of all of us as American citizens to truly understand um, what the legacy of Reaganism is. If we look at Central America today, we see a number of governments that I mean, I think could easily be defined as failed or semi-failed states where there is massive amounts of violence, um, incompetence at the highest level in dealing with violence, massive inequality. 
um, the failure of government at all levels to deal with these very basic issues that has led to new waves of displacement and migration. Um, and, and in some cases, people you know, actively fleeing uh, real threats of physical violence, seeking safety in the United States sort of following the, the paths that refugees from Central America took in the 1980s, we see a very similar thing going on um, in recent years. And that's a legacy of US interventionism, that instability, this ongoing violence is a legacy of US interventionism, of our failure to help Central America rebuild from the wars that we funded, that we made happen for our own, you know, quote unquote, national self-interest. It's really something that, that young people need to examine to understand what's happening right now, not only in Central America, but in our own country. I want to play you something Monica Prasad said during our conversation. He didn't see things that he didn't want to see. After it became clear that Reagan had been caught in Iran-Contra, a shady illegal event in which the Reagan administration sold none other than Iran, weapons in order to fund right-wing forces in Nicaragua. No, you heard me right. That was a two-for-one scandal. Reagan addressed the people whose trust he had betrayed. All of us. Well, all of us who were alive in 1987. I have spoken to you from this historic office on many occasions and about many things. The power of the presidency is often thought to reside within this Oval Office. Yet it doesn't rest here. It rests in you, the American people, and in your trust. Your trust is what gives a president his powers of leadership and his personal strength. And it's what I want to talk to you about this evening. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I think that really explains who Reagan was and why today he's seen by so many people as a hero. Here's Mayor Willie Brown. He was successful because he was believable. He literally uh, made it so that he was every man, or every woman, so to speak. He was clever, really clever. He was obviously the first Republican uh, to put uh, Republicanism together with the South. Reagan did that without being accused of being of the South without being accused of being a part of the South. Even to this day, no one ever references Reagan in that category. He was pre-media produced. Reagan produced his own image. Now, many times, the media produces the image of those people who run for public office. That was not the case with Reagan. He remained uh, the movie star in every way. His appearance at all times was consistent uh, with what we all had known him as, Dutch. We had known him as a radio announcer. We had known him as a great storyteller, etc. He kept that particular image at all times, and he parlayed that wonderfully into the presidency because in the series of debates and things of that nature, he was able at all times, to never sink himself into being just an ordinary politician. He stayed the superstar that he really was. Reagan was never 
personally disliked for the policies he advocated. And that's something that politicians need somehow to develop the ability to withstand the identification of their policies from them as a human being. Ronald Reagan was the spokesperson for Goldwater. He was a television pitch man for many organizations and companies. He was finally the governor and the president, and he was the president who said when they asked him about age in a debate, he simply said, I will not hold inexperience and youthfulness against my opponent as I answer this question. And that eliminated the issue of age. When we talk about Ronald Reagan, when we hear his name invoked after a failed violent insurrection at the United States Capitol, how we hear his name can not only be informed by the figure of a statesman who reminds us of what we remember wrongly as a simpler time. Reagan was good as a politician, perhaps incomparable. But what we forget about Reagan are really the things we most need to remember and to learn from, the things we prefer not to see, prefer to forget, and in part, the things that make our world the world it is today. Next week, we're going to make like an arms shipment from the Reagan administration and go to Iran for the story of another leader with a cult of personality, Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. A sincere thank you to our guests, Mayor Willie Brown, former mayor of San Francisco and former speaker of the California State Assembly. Maria Foscarinas, founder and executive director of the National Homelessness Law Center. Joe Marie Burt, a professor of political science and Latin American studies at George Mason University. Elizabeth Oglesby, a professor of Latin American studies at the University of Arizona. Monica Prasad, a professor of sociology at Northwestern University. And Dr. Paul Volberding, who, along with Drs. Connie Wafsey and Donald Abrams, opened the first dedicated HIV clinic in the country at San Francisco General Hospital in 1983. Special thanks to Palina Ayeva and the AIDS History Project. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. An enthusiastic welcome to our new writer, Mona Hassan. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Who is the podcast? Season 3. New episodes out every Tuesday. And if you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and spread the word.